You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 10th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. Could Finland really join NATO without Sweden? Should we find better things to do on our Mexican holidays than annoying the local sharks? And how one Filipino mayor plans to help the romantically hapless feel better about Valentine's Day? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. It's Friday, so it's our weekly in-house daily, and the Monocle staffers who most grievously failed to pin their tails anywhere near the donkey are Emma Searle, Tom Webb, and Andre Nikolai Parmentuan. They'll discuss all the day's big stories, and we'll have Henry Rees Sheridan's latest letter from New York City. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Monocle producer Emma Searle, Deputy Head of Radio Tom Webb, and a little later we'll hear from Monocle 24 researcher Andre Nikolai Parmentuan. Uh, but for the moment, Emma and Tom, hello to you both. Hi. Uh, we had discussed earlier by way of light introductory banter, we were going to discuss your upcoming holidays, which I know is will just be riveting to our, our, our many, many listeners. Tom, first of all, where are you going? Well, our listeners can learn from my trip because I am <laughs> hiking the Italian Riviera. And if you hike before end of March, it's free. Otherwise, you have to pay a seven euro fee to do the stretch between Pisa and Portofino. You've organised your holiday in order to avoid paying seven euros. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the accommodation is astronomical, but I don't have to pay to hike on a path. Fantastic. Okay. So you're going from, from Pisa to Portofino? On foot, yes. On foot. How long do you expect this to take you? I'm doing it in a hot week. Okay. <laughs> and h- how many places do you stop in along the way? There will be seven nights, seven towns. So no time spent, it, particularly in Pisa, as we've discussed. It's a little bit of a town you don't need to spend much time of i was being political there no well, i mean yeah once, <laughs> once you've seen the the wobbly tower and all those people who think they're being hilarious by having their photos taken at an angle which makes it look like they're holding it up you've kind of got the idea i did go to a very good restaurant in pisa once which is no help to you because i can't remember what it was called or where you'd find it and did you hold up the tower in no the i didn't do that no <laughs> no uh, emma where are you going i will be going back home to sunny cape town to see my family for another cousin's wedding which will be fun but i would like to highlight it's not holiday but you and i and christy o'grady we will be at the munich security conference next week uh, do watch out for that we will it, it might be a holiday if none of those interviews come off we, <laughs> might, we, we, we might just be in munich interviewing each other that'll be, be exciting episode for people to look forward to uh, we will be coming back to south africa but we will start with finland sweden and the sluggish progress of their joint bid for membership of nato the two countries applied to the alliance last may decades of neutrality set aside following Russia's onslaught against Ukraine. The accession protocols were signed at last July's NATO summit in Madrid. Neither country is there yet, however, due mostly to the obduracy of fellow NATO member Turkey, which has so far blocked Sweden due to the belief of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan that Sweden is untowardly indulgent of Kurdish opponents of his who live there. It is now being speculated that Finland, which has 1,340 kilometres of border with Russia may seek to go it alone. Um, Tom, these reports vary. Um, 
this idea that Finland might go without Sweden. Finland's Foreign Minister Pekka Havisto said it is speculative, which which isn't a no. Uh, but Sanna Marin, the Prime Minister, said a couple of weeks ago that the journey, as she put it, must be completed hand in hand. They do vary, and they do paint a very unclear picture. Whether or not you care for the Finland's Chancellor of Justice's comments, uh, but they said that the process that they're currently debating in Parliament would leave Finland some room to wait for Sweden, uh, but not endlessly. So while it is a common argument from a Finnish perspective that Finland needs NATO membership more urgently than Sweden, which is what's being banded about in Parliament, um, considering that Finland shares a border of Russia, the security situation, it, it does actually remain stable. So there isn't this big catalyst despite the war going on. But Russia is so tied down with Ukraine that it actually has little capacity to try and intimidate Finland. And it will likely take years for Russia to recover from losses as we're, we're seeing. So it is not worth pushing forward membership without Sweden because the, the cost, which would be the relationship, the close ties, Finland mm. relies on that with Sweden, is far, far higher. It's much more interest for Finland to be partners with Sweden than to go at it alone. Also, Emma, as things stand, NATO is not legally obliged to Finland's defence, but realistically, politically, diplomatically, I don't think Finland would be left to handle it alone should Russia take a pop at it. Um, But all that being considered, would it be a, a smart or a not smart thing for Finland to do this? I actually think that if push comes to shove, Finland should go at it alone. I mean, it's this is obviously a diplomatic uh, minefield for Finland. Um, And ideally, of course, it wants to join the alliance hand in hand with its biggest defence partner, Sweden. But if that's not possible, then surely it is better to go solo, at least for the to begin with. And I just don't see I don't see any strategic value in Finland binding itself absolutely to Sweden. Um, And I think recent polls show that 53% of Finns don't want Finland to wait. So time is short. As you say, Finland has Europe's uh, largest border with Russia, so it does need to wrap this up. Um, I think what also will be interesting once this whole process has eventually, we don't know how long it will take, come to a close, it'll be interesting to see whether Finland and Sweden actually took different approaches Mm. in the early stages of before they made this historic bid. Because there's a really interesting piece by the Financial Times' Nordic correspondent who said that Finland in those very early stages was a lot more prepared, really did its homework and sounded out every single uh, NATO member before it formally made the announcement unlike Sweden, Sweden, which wasn't as rigorous. So I just wonder if there's a lesson to be learned there. Do your homework. Uh, Tom, my vague thought, and I may not have thought this all the way through, is that there, though it's not ideal, obviously the most straightforward thing would be for Turkey to quit <clears throat> jerking everybody around and for Finland and Sweden to join. But if Finland joined without Sweden, that would leave Turkey actually massively exposed, wouldn't it? Because it would become very clear that it is only Turkey holding up for rather petulant reasons of its own, the strengthening of Europe's defence. Yeah, definitely. Which is strange that Erdogan said just last week that our position on Finland is positive, but it's not so positive on Sweden, alluding to the fact that they're quite happy for this to go ahead. But no member of NATO, and that includes Turkey, has any interest in 
leaving Sweden out in the cold. And particularly for NATO's defence planners, they've always wanted Sweden's geographic position. Mm -hmm. um, it makes it particularly relevant for other regional allies, you know, the security, the supply chain, the, chain, the, the, the mobility of it. And a sort of a joint Nordic accession to the alliance would create this Co coherent geostratic uh, region running through the Arctic. And that's something that would benefit Turkey as well. It would be a, a buffer. So it doesn't actually make sense for Turkey to be wishing this. Uh, Emma, this week's Foreign Desk Explainer was about disaster diplomacy and about the, the various uh, diplomatic currents that can be set in motion by a, a tragedy like the one that has struck Turkey and Syria this week. Sweden is among those countries which has come to Turkey's aid. It has so far pledged 30 million kroner, which is 2.7 million euros, which, grand scheme of things, is not a huge hill of beans, but I suspect there will be more where that came from. Um, does that kind of thing have an impact? Should it have an impact? Or, or should this be one of those things where no one's really thinking about anything else? It's just about trying to help the people who need it. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see whether this does play into it at all. I mean, as you say, humanitarian aid is political and Turkey's relations with uh, Israel and Greece haven't been always very amicable, as we know. And yet Erdogan is now ex having to accept their offers to send search and rescue teams. And even Armenia, I think, which has very strained relations uh, with Ankara, has also dispatched rescuers. So, I mean, one would hope that Sweden's aid offer would actually soften Erdogan's stance um, to them joining NATO. But to be honest, I think he's really painted himself into a corner, hasn't he? He has rather. We will be coming back to that one, obviously, over coming days and weeks. But let's now move along to sharks. And I know what you think you are thinking, rather. Finns, sharks, you'd reckon there'd be something there by way of seamless segue, but I worked on this for some minutes, and there isn't. Uh, authorities in Mexico have decided to ban shark pestering as a tourist diversion on Guadalupe Island, which has, or we should probably say had, a booming industry in cage diving. It is alleged that some operators sought to give their customers a more memorable experience by winding the sharks up with bait. Um, Emma, you are deputised at this table as, as Monocle 24's cage diving desk chief, because you, you have in fact done this and not merely done it but done it repeatedly that's correct i have indeed i've been shark cage diving not once not twice but i think six maybe even eight times i actually can't remember but yeah for listeners for context i i grew I, up i mean are sharks <laughs> a big thing for you well i i was actually kind of scared of them but i <laughs> i but I've, I've i've overcome that fear but um i grew up Phyllis, despite my very English-sounding accent, I did grow up in Cape Town, and the the Cape of Good Hope is kind of the the great white capital of the world, apparently, and it's a booming industry. And so, annoyingly, whenever a friend from abroad was visiting, despite my my strict efforts to try and steer them towards Table Mountain or our beautiful beaches or anything else, all they wanted to blim and do was go shark cage diving. So this is somehow, the, it's a Cape Town equivalent of Madame Tussauds. Apparently yeah. so. Apparently mm. so. And it's actually quite an intense day out. We had to drive to Khansby, which is like a two-hour drive. We had to put on these awful, awful smelly wetsuits which had been worn by hundreds of terrified tourists before <laughs> us and then we had to sign our lives away by signing this contract before we we could even get on the boat what so if you come back with a bit missing yes. that, that's on you <laughs> exactly yeah. but i remember distinctly feeling very calm when i saw 
who our captain was going to be because he was just this terrifying, massive man with a bald, shaven head. He was just menacing a shark man. So I felt very calm. And then, to be honest, when we got into the water, which is cold because it's the Atlantic currents, it was actually fantastic. And at one point, there were eight sharks around the boat. And actually, one of the sharks at one point stuck its nose through the gap of the cage and it hit my GoPro and I got excellent footage. Do, do they um, <laughs> do anything? I'm assuming this was a sort of ethical and above board organization. Do they do anything to wind the sharks up at all? Yeah, I think there are lots of debates about whether the practice is ethical. I mean, on the one hand, you could argue that shark cage diving actually kind of uh, helps break the stigma against sharks. I mean, if you think about the way that <laughs> sharks... No, I think this is a serious issue. I, 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 I can't imagine... I, 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 <laughs> because I, I can't imagine that this keeps the sharks awake at night. It's like, <laughs> oh no, everybody thinks we're all horrible and scary. Why can't we catch a break? Well, if you think about how they're portrayed in popular culture, like... Jaws, and you, you, you then think they're keen cinema goers? They might be. We don't. We don't I, but I, even, I, I have not been. Surely, at the moment you're seeing them, they're bloodthirsty and they're biting. Absolutely, the, and that does that changes people's opinion. I think so. I think Steven <laughs> Spielberg actually said that he regretted making Jaws because it actually led to a spike in deaths of sharks because people got so scared. And but I think the real problem is. Um, the use of bait or chumming, mm, um, mm -hmm. which is which is what they use to attract the sharks to the boats, because apparently that does change the behaviour of sharks, and they start associating humans with food. So that's well, you that's can see that they, you can see that, that would be undesirable. Uh, Tom, has this suffused you with a desire to go shark cage diving? I th the whole appeal of shark cage diving is, unlike dolphins, you can't just swim alongside them. Well, I mean, in you, the world. Could. you could. <laughs> <laughs> but they're also quite hard to find as well, I believe. So I, I was desperate to do it. Actually, Emma, I asked you for advice. And actually, I'll ask you for advice. You were describing the best type of captain is this kind of wizened, bald-headed man. What what kind of captain would terrify you? I mean, yeah, he was. He just looked like a shark, I think. And he, as close as you can get to a shark, the better. So that's what you look for, like when you get on a, a plane, you want a really old pilot. That's it's what the I same need to thing. do. Yeah. Is, is it just sharks? Because I, I'm always a bit perplexed myself by the... The a tourist attraction being essentially an exercise in, in animal bothering. I'm, I'm not I'm not against animals. I, I have I have been on th like I've done safari tours in South Africa and in East Watini, which um, are fantastic. But you're not really interacting with the creatures, at least not unless something's just gone really really dreadfully wrong. Like I've I've never got, for example, Emma, the appeal of I, I've also done. I'll start that thought again. I've done boat tours where you go out where there are dolphins and you can see dolphins, but I don't really see what the big thing is about like wanting to get in the water where they live and and annoy them. I mean, I mean, I'm I assuming the dolphins are annoyed by that. I would be. The only other kind of close encounter with sort of a creature that you shouldn't really have a close encounter with was I used to work at the Cape Town Aquarium. Mm. And one of my very exciting jobs was to clean the tanks. And part of that was was to actually feed the sea turtles, which was a strange process. You had to hold a sort of bat with a target and hold like chicken behind it 
But uh, I quite enjoyed it because you never get to see them in there. You know, be with turtles eat chicken. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure that that was the correct memo. (laughs) Uh, I mean, you you can't imagine that would happen in the wild unless we're talking about extremely slow chickens. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, I have actually swum with a creature in Mexico, but that's a very large fish. It's the the whale shark, and the reason why I did it is because there's something about being in the water with something that is just so gigantic. But to this point, even the ethical trips, and I went with. With an expensive ethical trip, you can't actually stop people from interfering with the animals, even mm. the very oh. best outfit. And I think this is a, a big problem in Mexico, which is why they've had to do this. Mm. You are listening to the Monocle Daily. We will have more straight after this. You're listening to the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller. Still with me are Tom Webb, Emma Searle, and we are joined for his Monocle Daily debut by Monocle 24 researcher Andre Nikolai Parmentuan. Uh, next Tuesday is Valentine's Day, the calendar's third most dismal and annoying outbreak of compulsory sentiment and forced jollity after Halloween and Christmas. It is, however, something to look forward to if you are, in fact, and this may well be a niche cohort among our global audience, a lovelorn local government employee in the General Luna Municipality of Quezon province in the Philippines. The mayor thereof, Erwin Florido, is offering double pay on February 14th to public servants not presently in a relationship, triple if they can claim no luck on this front in the last five years. Um, Andre, f- first of all, we will prevail upon your expertise here as an actual Filipino. <laughs> Valentine's Day is quite a big deal in the Philippines, right? Like way more so than it might be here or in most of Europe. Yes, it's actually really huge in the Philippines. It's one of the biggest commercialized non-holiday holidays in the Philippines. Um, And it's quite common that local government officials do mass weddings of hundreds of people, which is usually sponsored by the local government. And um, in the Philippines, it's one of the most common wedding anniversaries as well. Okay, well, let's now discuss this initiative uh, of Mayor Florido. Um, Andre, first of all, is this news to you? Have you heard of anything like this being done by any Filipino municipality before? This is definitely news to me in terms of tripling or doubling the pay of those who are single um, and kind of like incentivizing them to work on Valentine's Day. But what's interesting is that... um, the mass weddings I've seen for mm. sure. And I know someone in government that actually officiates these weddings of hundreds and hundreds of people in public spaces as well, in basketball courts, at the malls. Um, I guess Filipinos <laughs> just wa- want to be loved and be in love. Uh, and they say romance is dead. Um, Tom, I, I do want to discuss this initiative in particular of Mayor Florido. It strikes me that it is open to abuse. I mean, technically, as I understand it, you could break up with somebody on February 13th. You could go in and claim your double pay and then presumably use some of that double pay to buy them a nice big bunch of flowers to resolve matters on the 15th. You would also be saving yourself the cost of a Valentine's dinner. God, I'm brilliant. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Actually, I did a bit of digging around this story and the same guy did it last year, but with a twist. 
he gave single people the day off and an allowance to help them find themselves and <laughs> and also find a partner because you know the birth rate is falling it's a good incentive and to to prove it if you think this is a foolproof mechanism you had to provide a picture of you and your new Loved up, loved oh, one. Come on, that's not hard. I mean, you did like stock image on Google search and a, and, a, and, a, and a bit of fiddling with Photoshop. No, they have a special panel that they 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 convene for yeah, this they're, very. Uh, yeah, they're there to kind of validate it. Uh, a a special kind of, panel. A special panel, which is kind of weird if you get rejected, right? Like, you're <laughs> yeah, not I, single. This does this not strike anybody in General Luna Municipality as a colossal waste of ratepayers' money? Well, that's interesting because the mayor said that he is not touching public funds and that he's using his own money for it. Okay, does that not raise a few questions about how the mayor of a municipality in the Philippines has got this kind of spare cash to chuck around? For sure, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I'm somewhat suspicious of the whole thing, but uh, Andre, we, we should also stress, because this was a fun fact that I for one did not know uh, when I woke this morning, that the Philippines Constitution does actually make a point of mentioning love in its text. Yes, apparently it's one of the, uh, the few countries that has love in the preamble of its constitution. So, I mean, are they enjoining the citizens of the Philippines to love anything in particular, or is it, is it just the Philippines as such? Well, I think it's for the Philippines as such. The 1987 constitution was born out of the dictatorship, mm -hmm. so it, it most likely means that it is about the love of country. Well, that's that's something. I, I would be interested to hear from listeners if they know of any other constitutions that specifically mention this. If they don't, that's going in the next pub quiz I set. Um, Emma, do you, do you have views on Valentine's Day as such? Will you be doing anything to observe it? I mean, I think I'd like Valentine's Day a lot more if there was a monetary incentive to break off your relationship. <laughs> But I, I I really enjoy how the Philippines has kind of got a more positive or perhaps more evolved take on single life on Valentine's Day. But personally, I prefer I prefer Valentine's Day specials that are a bit more perhaps mean-spirited. And I think the best example I've seen can be found in Texas. Listen, there's a zoo in San Anto Antonio, which mm -hmm. is allowing visitors to pay $10 to name a cockroach after they're not so special someone and feed it to an animal. And that is my kind of special. Yeah, we, we did discuss this on, on the daily a <laughs> while ago, and our, our panel were somewhat perplexed, Emma. Clearly less vindictive people than <laughs> you have just revealed yourself to. Now, this is a whole other side of Emma we're seeing on this show. Um, th that was a weird one, because in addition to that, not only can you name a cockroach after which ever vexatious ex you like and have it fed to some sort of rodent you can arrange to have an email sent to the <laughs> ex in question or some sort of digital card and I, that just struck me as like the only response that's going to get from that person is like god did i duck a bullet there that's, I mean, that, that is that is quite curious behavior it'll get them to bug off <laughs> hey uh tom do, do you have any exciting plans for next tuesday i'd I'm not looking for sympathy here. I do have a, a bad relationship with Valentine's because I went to one of those horrific schools where they put boxes on the end of your desk on Valentine's to encourage letters. And I never I got... We're all seeing where this is going. Yeah, no, I never got a single one. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> but I wrote sympathy ones for, let's be honest, the, the more obvious people who weren't going to get them. And I never got one in return. Sorry, who, who are the more obvious people who weren't going to get one, Tom? Let's, oh. let's, see, how, let's see how deep we can dig you in here. <laughs> you know, the ones that came in smelling funny. <laughs> <laughs>
but no, I, I because of this, I am actually quite scarred, and I don't think you should be celebrating Valentine's at school while you're growing up. Um, I, I, I would go further. Um, I, <laughs> it, it's, um, I, I don't know. I, I have been usually when I've been in restaurants on Valentine's Day, it has been by accident because I've just gone out to dinner with someone and forgotten what the date was. And it always just strikes me: you just look around it and think nobody is enjoying this, <laughs> or is it, or is this like, or me and my mate have just decided to go out and have a drink and forgotten it was February 14th. I think are the only people in this restaurant actually enjoying our evening. Everybody else just seems like burdened by expectation and obligation. Am I, am I wrong about any of this? Is anybody here actually looking forward to it? Well, I think um, I've worked in food and beverage for a long time, and it's one of their biggest uh, days uh, wherein we uh, 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 the industry makes a lot of money because it, you know they offer products, they offer promos, and everyone is just kind of willing to give and share to their loved ones. I think you may have hit on something with the whole making money aspect of it. <laughs> this, this has got terribly, terribly cynical and mean-spirited. A happy Valentine's Day to all our listeners for next Tuesday. Um, Andre Nikolai Parmentu and Tom Webb, MSL, thank you for joining us. Now on The Daily, Natasha Ramsey-Levi has been in the eye of the storm of the fashion world for 17 years as former artistic director of Chloe and Nick Nicholas Gesquier's right hand at both Louis Vuitton and Balenciaga before that. Echo Leather, a division of shoe company Echo, has brought together Natasha and other designers, Bianca Saunders, Isaac Rayner, Costas Makoudis, and architect Bernard Dubois, as the first guest creatives of its new design collective. Monocle's Stella Roos sat down with Natasha to talk at Collective, the new design project that has seen her creating fashion once more. It was fun. It felt like young again, you know? It felt to be able to give time to a factory, to give time to one product, looking at it and, you know, every details and, and also being responsible and autonomous. I had this strange, a bit extreme feeling while COVID, when everything, like I'm talking about first confinement, of course, when everything stopped, it's how much we delegate all our life, starting by our personal life, and especially when you're a creative director, that every second of your life has to be productive and performative. Which is great and super exciting and I loved it and I'm not saying anything wrong about that. It just I felt, personally I felt the need to get back my own stuff. Basically like clean my apartment, make my own food, take care of my son. Not like having a babysitter, putting him back to school, you know, it's just... Maternity, it's something I decided, it's not something I want to, you know, it's not a submission and it's uh, something I love. So I like to spend time with it and it will stop at a moment. So it's a moment to, to dedicate. So I felt this need of taking back my own things. And so the project at Collective, in a way, corresponded to that because then I'm back at doing things. I'm marketing myself. I'm doing my own sketch. I'm making my own phone calls. I'm using my, you know, making my schedule. Taking my my tickets. I mean, small things, but it's important. Like finding technical solutions and and being able to work really hands on hands. Of course, with an amazing team that Ad Collective has pulled out. So I was absolutely not alone in doing the things like you. It's not it's not that, but there was no more filter. A bit like going back to design school, maybe. A bit like going back to design school. Yeah. But with knowledge and capacity, because the proposal of Ad Collective, I mean, it's an amazing proposition. Huh? It's a, I totally thank them and, and I'm very grateful. 
and admirative of also the courage that Panos and all the Echo Leather team is, is putting because it, it, the way they want to work it doesn't exist, it's new. Yeah. And it feels really fresh. Yeah, it's nice because you're not really behind a brand. It's yes. more really the direct manufacturer and then the, the designers. Mm -hmm. And without really, I mean, I don't know how they will evolve. Maybe at the moment they will need to have guidelines, but for the moment we didn't have any guidelines, which felt weird, honestly. <laughs> I'm like, are you sure we don't need a guideline? <laughs> for me, the guideline was, of course, leather and the collective. Okay, I will be with Isaac, Costas and Bianca. This is their style. How can I cope with that style? Because, of course, when they called me at the beginning, I was like, Uh, are you aware? Um, my designs are a bit different. You know, I'm not very minimalistic. I'm not known for that, and it's not. I'm more South European. <laughs> I'm more emotion and complication <laughs> and layerings. And so they were like, "No, no, of course we need that." But I felt also the need to have a product at the end that will, you know, have a conversation, dialogue with with Costas and Isaac and Brancas. So that, for me, gave me a frame. Yeah, you said in the beginning also that that was one of the things that appealed to you, was this collaboration with designers. What do you think that adds? Showing that it's not about competition. There is a humility to it, which I... Getting out of like the, you know, the big creative director thing, it, was, it felt good, it felt true to what I am. And yeah, and having different experience, meeting new people, because it's totally... I mean, I knew Costas and we worked together, years and years ago but I didn't know Isaac, I didn't know Bianca, I didn't know anyone at Echo so also you know being able to put yourself into a danger zone in a way you know because when you're a creative director you because the work is so hard you always have to have alumni around you and people that you know that you know that will deliver in the way you need them to deliver you know And it's so important, you cannot do without that. It's impossible, you need your team. And I, I miss my team for sure. But at the same time, I felt an interesting path to, you know, to go out there in a, in a space I didn't know anyone and, and just try to meet and, and, and deliver and, and share how it was coming. That was Natasha Ramsey-Levi speaking to Stella Roos. You're listening to the Monocle Daily. And finally, on today's show, it's time for our latest letter from New York City. Here is Henry Ree Sheridan. Extending for nearly a mile and a half through the neighborhood of Chelsea, the High Line is an elevated linear park built on a former railroad spur on the west side of Manhattan. A big part of what makes the park special is that it's really long and thin. And to be honest, that fact alone gives it a compelling weirdness appeal. But there's more to the High Line than that. On both sides, the park's walkways lined with plants modeled on the vegetation that grew on the tracks in the years it lay derelict. There's artwork to be found all the way along the walk. A public video arts program hosts regular screenings in a covered section of the park, and there's an amphitheatre with a massive window you can use to spy on people below. It's easy to imagine these combined elements not meshing and feeling gimmicky, but in the case of the High Line, the execution has come off, and it just works. It functions as a bit of a tourist trap, 
But not even the most hardline New York supremacists I know are willing to dismiss the High Line as meritless. Most of the credit for the success of the project has to go to the community group organisers who saved the elevated railway structure from demolition. In October of 1999, Joshua David and Robert Hammond formed a non-profit organisation called Friends of the High Line. It had been 19 years since the last train had rolled along the elevated tracks. Three boxcars containing frozen turkeys for a west side meat wholesaler. Since then, the High Line had fallen into disrepair. It was threatened with demolition during Rudy Giuliani's second term as mayor. But friends of the High Line advocated for the structure's preservation. They had a vision for an elevated park or walkway, similar to the Promenade Plante in Paris or the Landschaftspark Duisburg Nord in Germany. Both of these projects were innovative precedents for the repurposing of industrial land in urban landscaping. Friends of the High Line were boosted in their efforts by the photos of the elevated tracks that were taken by Joel Sternfeld in the year 2000. The images captured the eerily meadow-like natural beauty that had sprung up on the High Line during its disuse. The images were wheeled out at public meetings when the subject of saving the High Line was discussed. The cause also attracted endorsements from the city's art world, whose centre of gravity had shifted from Soho to Chelsea in the mid-1990s. Several galleries hosted fundraising benefits for the High Line in the early 2000s. Fashion designer Diane von Furstenberg, who had moved her New York City headquarters to the area in 1997, organised fundraising events in her studio with her husband, Barry Diller. With momentum building, Giuliani's successor as mayor, Michael Bloomberg, announced plans for a High Line Park in September of 2003. Construction commenced in 2006. The park was designed by the New York-based landscape architecture firm Field Operations and architects Diller, Scafidio and Renfro, along with several other design partners. Construction happened in phases with the first open to the public in June 2009. The most recently completed section was opened in June 2019, 10 years later. The neighbourhood surrounding the High Line felt its impact from the completion of the first stage. It attracted millions of visitors to the area, 8 million in 2019. But it also led to an expansion of real estate development alongside the park and in the area surrounding it. The first of a string of projects linked to the development of the High Line was the Standard Hotel, which straddles the park, rising directly over it on two pillars. By 2009, more than 30 projects were planned or under construction nearby. In addition to new developments, properties directly adjacent to the High Line have seen their prices raised by an average of 10% over properties a few blocks away. The latest construction phase underway will connect the High Line to the Moynihan Train Hall at Penn Station. The High Line looks to shape New York for years to come, a remarkable achievement for a project that started as a vision of a community group. And what's most notable is that Friends of the High Line is still at the helm. The group has served as its primary steward since its opening in 2009, responsible for the daily operation and maintenance of the park. For Monocle in New York City, I'm Henry Rees Sheridan. 
And that is it for today's edition of The Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Emma Searle, Tom Webb and Andre Nikolai Parmentuan. Today's show was produced by Tom Webb and researched by Andre Nikolai Parmentuan. Our sound engineer was Adam Heaton. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time on Monday. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. <laughs>